Sarah. Hi, Alison. So another spotlight on France. How are you doing? I'm a bit jittery, actually. Um, I'm wondering, will we be able to travel for the upcoming Christmas holidays? We're going to find out this evening whether or not lockdown will be eased. Mm. But for the moment, well, everything's up in the air because this COVID infection rate is still rather too high here in France. Yeah, the original announcement was that restrictions would be eased if we could somehow get below 5,000 infections a day. And we're about double that now. Yeah, and President Macron has this unfortunate habit, doesn't he, of making major announcements just on the very day when we record. So for the moment, we're all holding our breath. It's not just us. Um, Theatres, cinemas, gyms, they were all supposed to reopen on December 15th if the infection rate goes down. Um, That's looking pretty unlikely now. Restaurants and cafes were always going to have to wait until January 20th at the earliest. But if infections aren't going down, who knows what will happen? In the meantime, many restaurants have been experimenting. The French government has guaranteed a minimum monthly subsidy to them to keep them afloat, but some are staying open also for takeout. So that's takeaway, huh? That's what I call takeaway. That's another British-American linguistic divide. (laughs) (laughs) Linguistic divide. But even here in France, there isn't really a good word for it. I mean, à emporter, or they've been saying click and collect using the English Mm -hmm. term, because it's not really a big part of the French dining culture until now. Um, Alison, do you do takeout or takeaway? Not that much, Uh, even though I did grow up on takeaway fish and chips like so many Brits. I'm the odd pizza, I guess, with the family, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I never really did it until recently. And lately, I've been really trying to take out lunch once a week from the local cafes and restaurants because I'd really like them to stay in business. Mm. Um, but I'm definitely frustrated with how much packaging is involved in my takeout food. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, some food is made for takeout, of course, like hot dogs. At this restaurant in the center of Paris, a chef is painting sauce onto buns and popping the sausages into a large oven. These are gourmet hot dogs topped with glazed onions, shallot pickles. Orders come in via the website or Uber Eats. The hot dogs get packed up into the little cardboard boxes. Chef Victor Mercier shakes open a paper bag, puts the order in, writes merci and a smiley face on the bag, and then sets it on the corner ready for a delivery person to pick it up. So we're actually at Fief, Fait ici en France, made here in France. It's a restaurant in the center of Paris. Everything in this restaurant is sourced from mainland France. So even the coffee, their coffee is actually not coffee grains. It's made with roasted grains. Um, The sausages and everything that goes into these hot dogs are French. But they actually have nothing to do with what the restaurant usually serves when it's not in lockdown mode. Mercier is a top chef finalist, and he opened Fief just over a year ago in October 2019. It's his very first restaurant. He's young. He's 30. And it's a gastronomic restaurant. He's hoping for a Michelin star this year. I spoke with him about the impact of the lockdown and coronavirus on his business. He's relatively accepting of being shut down. He's not bitter like some restaurant owners have been. But it hasn't been easy either. He did manage to open for two months this summer. We took all the disposition we had to take, uh, masks. We took out a few seats. I was actually thinking about putting uh, like um, 
big window in front of a bar to actually protect myself from the customers and to protect the customer from me, even if I had a mask. But I was like, yeah, but I'm going to basically kill the experience. In the restaurant, I'm in front of the customers. I cook in front of them like a Japanese uh, sushi bar in a way, you know. Maybe the security uh, would be a bit better, but I'm not even sure about it. But the experience will go lower. So I was like, no, I'm not going to make this sacrifice. And eventually, uh, anyway, I closed uh, two months later. So I was like, okay. So you, so you closed again, second lockdown. But this time you said, okay, we're going to do something different. We're going to have a takeout offer. Yeah, we're going to try something at least. Because, I, uh, you know, I was like, okay, maybe I need to exist again. So, yeah, we tried some hot dogs. I lived in Denmark and it was uh, my favorite comfort food. I was like, okay, what could go fast, uh, excite people, and where I could still uh, have my 100 French product concept. It's not at all what you normally would present in this restaurant. No, I want a mission star here. The goal is to have a, a mission star. Um, so why not then go with what you were cooking before? The profession we do is hospitality. So uh, there is no hospitality into putting food into boxes. I know we have to adapt, but still. You know, it's extremely frustrating to put uh, just a thank you note on a, on a paper bag and say thank you. You don't see the people, you don't see the expression, you don't see, you see nothing. So, um, yeah, the uberization of a society is extremely frustrating when you... Um, when you have a restaurant like ours where you see everything. You know, it's not like we have a kitchen downstairs and uh, we don't see the people. We see the people every night. I welcome you. I come and visit you when you are eating. So the hot dog concept, is that bringing that back? It's kind of a disappointment, but I think there is also a few reasons behind that. Because the product is really good and we have some good uh, reviews on Uber Eats. (laughs) (laughs) That also is very frustrating. I had to, um, in French, we say retourner notre veste. I'm saying this and I'm doing the opposite thing. I'm saying that delivery and uberization is killing the, the hospitality game and, uh, well, I'm working with them. So there is a huge contrast and it's frustrating. Your concept here is everything comes from France. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to open a Michelin star eventually restaurant with just French products? Well, I think when you open a restaurant, you need to have a concept and a strong concept if you want to uh, catch people's intention. So I thought uh, that the concept was good. It could change a lot of things if people uh, decide to to do like we do, I think. So it was extremely important for me to also have um, a voice in a way. We say in France that we have the best uh, culture, the best food, the best products, blah, blah, blah. But uh, when you see most of a restaurant, they... Well, they import a lot, <laughs> so it was kind of a nonsense for me. It's like, okay, but if you uh, guys are saying that we have the best agriculture and the best product, show it, prove it. How easy or difficult is that to really only do mainland France products? You, you can basically find everything you want here. It's just that uh, you have to have the knowledge and also uh, you have to trust uh, your suppliers. So when you say, I want this French, and you see something from Spain, well... You send it back, and eventually, when you send it back like six or seven times a month, they manage to understand. Uh, the other day, for example, I was like, I see some truffles, and uh, they come from uh, Bourgogne, Burgundy, which is an area in France. And I see a truffle from Burgundy, and then after I see Spain. And eventually, in fact, you can use the name from because it's like the type of uh, the truffle. But it, so it's like truffle from Burgundy yes. as the type of truffle, but they yes. were actually grown in Spain. Exactly. 
I send it back and I say, yeah, but guys, don't don't try to trick me. I, I will see it anyway. So um, so you have to be extremely um, cautious about everything you receive. So what's the future for you? But I mean, the future of the restaurant industry in France, I mean, it's pretty grim, no? Apparently, it's going to restaurant out of three who are not going yeah. to make it. So two thirds of restaurants yes. are going to yes. shut down. But that's what we uh, heard. Uh, we're going to be okay, I think, because of uh, helps. The subsidies and the tax breaks Obviously, and the, land, the you, loans. You, you, yeah. you, you, I have to say that France is doing a really good job about us. Even if we feel that we are being sacrificed, we are the first to close and the last to reopen. So um, obviously, uh, yeah, it's like, hey, what about us? Do you think it makes sense or it doesn't make yeah, sense doesn't to make you? Sense. I, I completely understand. It's just, it's, it's, that's just the way it is. But it's, obviously, it's tough to accept. But Especially because France is such a restaurant, cafe culture. Yeah, yeah basically, uh, we smoke, we drink, or we go to the restaurant. I mean, you see how depressed uh, French people are because uh, without the restaurant. It's like... I know it's the same in a lot of countries, but still. So, yeah, financially is going to be extremely tough. Do you think this is pushing France? Because French people, Parisians, I would say French people in general, weren't until recently much into takeout. They'd go down to the restaurant. Uh, is that going to shift? I think when we are going to reopen, they will be here. If they want to sit around the table and have uh, some talks with their friends. and uh, It's not so much the food itself, but the experience. Yeah, it's about being together. Even if the food is good when it's delivered, you still feel alone. You can imagine that there won't be any uh, human connections anymore. Hopefully it will be wrong, but I can understand also the fear of that. And you can see that the lockdown already um, changed a lot of things. For example, uh, teleworking, it never happened before. So already it's cutting down some really old habits who are going, I think, to change a lot of things uh, in our society in the next uh, decade. So, Sarah, in the meantime, there he is, serving hot dogs. That's not very French, is it? <laughs> Chien chaud, no. Um, it does allow him to have only three people working instead of his usual ten. The rest of the staff is on furlough, waiting to be reopened. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's aiming for a Michelin star. Can restaurants actually get them this year? I mean, they've only been open for about four months in total. Well, the organization says they will be handing out stars, as planned, in January. Um, there won't be a ceremony. Mercier says it'll be maybe hit or miss for him because these stars are based on consistency, right? The inspectors visit several times to see how the food and the service goes. So Mercier, maybe he got visited sometime in January when he was open. He doesn't know. But it could have been a bad night. Who knows? Mm. Um, what the stars will actually be based on this year, maybe, is the subject for another story. Stay tuned. C'est vrai qu'il fait un temps superbe pour un dimanche de février. Il y a ceux qui bronzent déjà sur l'herbe et ceux qui s'inquiètent des degrés. Les éléments sont en colère et les décideurs font la loi. Quand un expert montre la terre, l'industriel regarde le doigt. Et quand il rentre à la maison, il dit franchement, il n'y a plus de saison. Time for some history now. It was five years ago on the 12th of December 2015 that close to 200 countries made climate history when they adopted the landmark Paris Agreement here in the French capital. It came into force on November the 4th, the year after, in 2016. 
Yeah, so 196 countries around the world, rich and poor countries, agreed to present what they called nationally determined contributions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. This to keep global temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by the year 2100. Quite ambitious. Now, at the time, Sarah, you'll remember the then French president, François Hollande, said the deal was a major leap for mankind. Um, In fact, the leap is small for the moment. So far, only a few countries around the world have provided these contributions. France hasn't, although its plan will be part of the European Climate Law or the Green New Deal, which is currently being worked on. But France still hasn't provided its own national plan to the European Union for that. Yeah, and since 2015, the world has vastly expanded its production of renewable energy. That's good news. By 2025, it will be the biggest source of power, according to the International Energy Agency, displacing coal, which, of course, is responsible for so much of the uh, CO2 emissions. France has had some success in its construction centre as well, renovating buildings to be more energy efficient. It's said that this is an industry that will help pull France out of its economic crisis due to the coronavirus. But the French transportation and agriculture sectors are still the big sticking points in Mm. terms of emissions. um, Overall, cuts aren't enough to meet France's targets. Um, France should have reduced its carbon emissions by 1.5% each year, but it's only reduced them by 0.9%, just over half. Plus, in 2023, it'll have to start cutting emissions by 3% a year. France seemed to be on a path towards maybe addressing this. The government organized a citizen climate assembly last year. Remember that? I do indeed. President Macron said that he wanted citizens involved in these decisions. Yeah, so 150 people, citizens, met for months, actually, and took it very seriously. They came up with a plan. Um, It was going to be a democratic revolution, kind of touted as the first of these citizen assemblies that would actually work in the world. And Macron was going to propose a referendum on those recommendations next year in 2021. But now he's snubbing it. Uh, Mm. The economy is in the doldrums. And he said just last week that he will not follow the recommendations to the letter. We will actually be following up on this citizen assembly in a future podcast early next year. Stay tuned. Déteste la police. Everyone hates the police. That's a common chant that you'll hear during protests in France over these last few days and weeks. And there have been many recently, specifically against police violence, which grew on the back of the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., but also followed on the Yellow Vest movement, right, which often pitted protesters against police, sometimes quite violently. Um, so, Alison, do the French really hate the police? The opinion polls say no. The majority of French people still back the police, but a growing number, especially young people, say that they no longer trust the police, around 40%, according to some recent polls. Well, mistrust is one thing. Hate is another, I guess. Indeed. There have been some clear cases of police brutality of late. One of the most notable was Cédric Chouvia. He was a black driver who died after police put him in a chokehold. Um, Police have also been filmed during demonstrations being very heavy-handed, beating people up. Yeah, we've actually talked about the severe injuries Mm. caused by LBDs, you know, the rubber bullets and so on before on the show. 
Yeah, and some of this has clearly been the police's way of responding to the increasing violence that's been used by protesters. The so-called black blocks, for example, in particular, who, who are out to bait the police and smash up property and so on, they're particularly violent. But a recent event has really shifted the situation up a notch here and fed into much wider mistrust of the police. This is the Michel Zeckler affair. Yeah, about two weeks ago, at the end of November, um, police were filmed on a CCTV camera beating up Zeckler, who's a black music producer. He was in his studio in central Paris, and the beating went on for 15 minutes. Um, Zeckler wasn't wearing a mask, which is ostensibly the reason why the police went after him. Um, the officers didn't know they were being filmed, and they arrested Zeckler for resisting arrest and made a false record of what happened. And naturally, that sparked massive outrage. Many, many people, even famous footballers and pop stars, weighed in to denounce the violence. And it forced the government to backtrack on a proposed bill, which would have made it an offence to broadcast so-called malicious images of the police on duty, something that was originally designed to protect the police. Now, the Interior Minister, Gérald Darmanin, who had been very supportive of the police and some would say much too supportive, suddenly changed tack and he said that the four officers in question had brought shame on the profession. The four officers involved were suspended and within a week they were charged with beating and racially abusing Zeckler. Now, this has put the police in an even worse light than before, and one officer very publicly has quit over it, Alexandre Langlois, who worked in intelligence and uh, is head of the Vigie Police Union, tendered his resignation to the Ministry of the Interior last week after 14 years in the service. Je crois plus que le métier que lequel je suis rentré et que j'aime soit réformable de l'intérieur. I no longer believe that the profession I went into and which I love can be reformed from the inside, he said. I no longer recognize myself in the people in uniform who beat people up and write false accounts and who are, above all, supported by the government. Langlois is an outlier, though. I mean, judging by how some other unions have reacted. Absolutely. The two main police unions were outraged by President Macron, who said that the police do racially profile people that they stop. The unions have slammed what they said was the government's lack of faith in the police, and they've called his comments shameful. They said the president will get the police he deserves. Wow, that, that sounds mm. ominous. The government can't afford to have the police up against it. And at the same time, you wonder what it's like being on the receiving end of so much criticism, you know, both from the bosses and the public. Yeah, now one person who knows a lot about that is a 30-year-old Juliette Alpha. She's now an investigator, but she was a cop on the streets for five years, what they call a police de secours, a flic. Uh, the ones who respond when you dial the emergency number 17 for help. They're, they're also the ones who check to see if you have your certificate, right, to leave the house during lockdown. That's right. Uh, Julia Alpha is on a bit of a mission, in fact, to try and show what the police do on a daily basis. She's very, very active on social media, especially Twitter, where she recounts her life as a female cop chasing the bad guys. She also wrote a book earlier this year about her career, Vima Vida Flick, Living My Life as a Cop. Now, she talks about the fascination she had with becoming a cop when she was growing up, with this noble idea of serving the community, uh, the very intense year she spent in police school where she literally lived and breathed police culture 
the adrenaline of learning to to shoot with a gun, the shock of identifying her first dead body. Mm. So lots of details. She writes um, also about helping a woman leave her violent partner and a time during a particularly violent Yellow Vest demonstration where she found herself surrounded by a crowd of black blocks. We were the prey, they were the hunters, she said. And she remembers vividly that wave of hatred and it's got worse since then. I was always proud to have chosen this profession, to wear the uniform, she says, and represent this great institution. But now it's almost shameful to say you're a cop. You say it under your breath, sometimes not at all, you don't dare. And you ask yourself, what's the point? What's the point sacrificing your personal life when you see this outpouring of hatred and you're continually being called into question? Whereas you've got around 150,000 officers in France, most of whom are just doing their job, and it's totally denigrated. Yeah, it sounds like it takes a psychological toll, and we've heard about suicide rates that are quite high amongst the police. Yes, higher than any other profession in France other than the farming profession. Julia Alpha warns that more police will commit suicide if they don't get more support. They're also feeling very let down by the state, which has um, run down the police over the last 20 or 30 years, failed to invest. Some police stations are virtually like squats. When you work in those kind of conditions, you don't feel good about yourself. You can't be well balanced. You can't be uh, mentally well balanced. It's not possible. So police are at breaking point and they sometimes explode into anger. Yeah, but that anger doesn't justify a lot of what has happened. I mean, there have been abuses. Does she condemn the violence that the police have committed? Sort of, but she insists that it is still a minority. I understand that the finger gets pointed at the lost sheep in our profession, she says. They have to leave the police. They have no place in our ranks. But what about the Michelle Zeckler video that we were talking about, which even the interior minister described as shameful? I mean, we're talking about issues of structural racism and the police. I mean, it's more than just one bad apple. Well, she couldn't comment on the details of what is an ongoing investigation, but she knows that all the police are going to feel the fallout. When I see videos like that, I say to myself, there are going to be heavy repercussions on all the profession. We're all going to pay for it, she says. I'll be subjected to this kind of hate, even though I'm not in the video. So how would she go about repairing the faith um, that has been lost that people have in the police in France? The important thing for her is that when an officer has been charged with whatever offence, be it violence or a breach of police deontology, it should be made public, just like it was very quickly in the Zeckler case. That's not done at the moment, and she says usually, often, it's sorted out within the family, as she says. And that notion of the family is one thing that really fascinated me in her book, Um, She describes the police as her second family. And there's a very moving section where she describes how she ended up comforting a colleague of hers who came back from the Bataclan terror attack in 2015 with dried blood and bits of flesh still mangled in uh, her blonde hair. Um, Mm. Clearly, you know, they, they develop a very, very close bond here. And as she says, she doesn't describe them as her colleagues, but rather as her brothers and sisters in arms. It's not surprising because you're often putting your life into uh, your colleagues' hands.
So that means, though, that you'd be less likely to call out a colleague when you see them behaving badly. You would think so, and it may be the case. But Alpha maintains she's not afraid to do the right thing. I've witnessed my colleagues slipping up. She says things like insulting people during a police intervention. I reported it straight away. The colleagues got sanctioned. So the government's been talking tough about no impunity for bad cops.、Um, it's working on a police reform program early next year. Yeah, Macron ordered the Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin to come up with proposals to improve relations between the police and the public, including better training. It's important to remember, Sarah, that some of these very young police officers. Probably shouldn't have found their way into the force in the first place, because、huh. yeah, after the 2015 terror attacks, the government wanted, needed to boost police numbers, and it recruited、um, 2,000 more in just two years. Now there weren't necessarily any more candidates during that time, so basically, perhaps lesser grade material, if you like, got accepted.、Mm. Many of these、uh, police officers clearly need a lot more supervision, which is not available, and they need more on-the-job training once they get out of police school, which again is not currently the case. Now things won't get sorted out overnight, but at least the government is finally addressing some of the core issues. A much bigger and tougher task, though, is getting a shift in mentality so that the police are seen and that they see themselves more as serving the people than enforcing social order.、That's It's going to take a long time, and to be honest, it's not even sure that that's what either the government or the police themselves want. Well, that's it for Spotlight on France. We're a production of the English service of Radio France International. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a review or a rating on iTunes. It helps people find the show. You can find additional material, photos, short videos on our Instagram, Spotlight on France. Send us questions or comments to spotlight.france@rfi.fr. This episode was mixed by Cecil Pompiani, and you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again next week, Thursday, December the seventeenth, before taking a bit of a holiday break. Bye, Alison. Bye, bye, Sarah.